Would you have tipped April Flowers a $200 tip on like an $8 meal or would you have tipped her even more than $200? I would have went 300, man. <laughs> oh man, this really makes me want to rob a bank and get some Dr. Pepper. And a Lone Star. <laughs> and Winston Lights. <laughs> now you're talking. Well, you have a good day, buddy. And thanks again. Talk to you later, bro. Have a good night. You gotta go get yourself a pizza and some wings. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I'll dip the wings in the marinara sauce of the pizza. There you go. Now you're talking. Now you're talking. <laughs> See you, man. Later. Yo, Falsetto, what's your favorite line and scene from this slick flick pick? A line of dialogue from Hell or High Water, and it's at the very end of the film, and it's my favorite line of dialogue in the movie. And you've got Toby Howard, and you've got Marcus Hamilton. Toby says, hey, I rent a little house in town. If you want to stop by and finish this conversation, you're welcome anytime. Oh, I like that. I'll be seeing you. Yeah, soon I hope. I'm ready to be done with this. You'll never be done with it, no matter what. It's going to haunt you, son, for the rest of your days. But you won't be alone. It's going to haunt me, too. If you stop by, maybe I'll give you peace. Maybe. Maybe I'll give it to you. That scene, I always loved it. And it reminds me of that scene from Heat when they're at the coffee shop. And Al Pacino and Robert De Niro are like, maybe I'll put you down. Well, maybe it'll go that way. Or maybe I'll put you down. It's kind of reminiscent of that to me. And one of the contenders was between the brothers, Tanner and Toby. Toby says, I need you sober. And Tanner says, who the hell gets drunk off a of beer? <laughs> and my favorite scene is when, which we were just talking about off mic. It's when Toby asks Tanner, you know, where he's headed to. And he's sitting in the Bronco. And then it just washes over his face and then washes over our face. And he just stares at him on the desolate, as it is gorgeous, open road of West Texas. And you know that he's about to go take all the blame for his brother. And I just love that fucking scene. What about you, J-Dog? What is your favorite line and your favorite scene from Hell or High Water? Well, dude, as you went through that right there at the end, I literally the hair on the arm is, is literally standing up right now just because, yeah, it's so reminiscent of heat. You know, it makes me it makes me wonder what happened after that scene. Did they ever finish the conversation, you know, and just Tanner falling on the proverbial sword for Toby is just a beautiful act. But then also like he he was in a lot of pain from all the trauma in his life and he was kind of ready to be out of it. And you see it in that moment. But my favorite scene is more a bit more lighthearted. This is also something that you and I just talked about off mic, but it's the convenience store stop just to, right after they cross the Oklahoma border when they're headed to clean the clean the money at the casino. First off, Toby asks Tanner if he wants anything from inside the store. And uh, Tanner is Doc, Dr. Pepper and Winston Lights. <laughs> and then stands there kind of looking like he's asleep. And then the, the green douchebag car pulls up and, you know, the guy driving the car kind of starts talking some shit. And Tanner's kind of just like looking at this dude. Really? You know, this, this, this dude is such a douchebag and thinks he's hot shit. And then, of course, he starts trying to act hard and pulls his gun and man when toby comes up behind him <laughs> and just beats the ever-living shit out of him and then runs over to his little bitch-ass friend in the passenger seat and he's like oh he had it coming he had it coming don't hurt me <laughs> and then uh but whenever ben foster tanner before that happens boy you think there were 10 of me <laughs> and then how hard he's laughing when Toby beats the ever-living shit out of this kid, and he's just like, you got some spunk left in you. You're getting to be old hat at this. <laughs> uh, yes. And then Toby's taking it like, Hita, you know, he gets back in the car and he says, Hita killed you. And then Tanner's response was, 
that's not the way it would have gone, little brother. You know, like he just knows that nobody, even if this kid had a fucking gun, like that wouldn't have been a problem. He could have handled it. And then as they're driving away, he's like, Timmy, Timmy, I told you. <laughs> oh man, that's some good shit. Welcome, Cinematic Fanatics, to Slick Flick Pick, an entertaining Slick Flick explaining series, a desirable diversion from the main vein of Chemohawk Sessions. You are my Cinematic Fanatic, I, your worthwhile fucking cinephile. For your scenery episode, we offer a financially applauded, critically lauded, with captivating cinematic shots of New Mexico, passing for Texaco, but we'll pretend it's the Lone Star State for this flick is fucking slick and goddamn great. Bridges' acting heft adds some weight. This flick ends not in raucous gunplay, but with a quiet debate, as Toby and Marcus opine their fate. For a future gunfight, they set a date. They both appreciate that they both lost a mate, but as Pump Jacks pump oil, the ex-lawman's eyes fill with hate. We offer you regarding this neo-Western crime drama film, but also a quietly drastic political film and a cult F-Star's fantastic classic. Backwater towns far removed from the rich, embracing their lives in a neo-Western niche, where tweakers do tweak and Tanner does twitch, where stolen cars are bulldozed in a ditch. Slow burning, but always churning auricular presentation of one of my most favorite, oft rewatched, well-acted, and shot with slick fucking gravitas by a cooperative and collaborative combo of brotherly sidekick protagonists and one weary but still slick antagonist working off wholly original source material and capturing the desolate dusty cracked and dried landscape in a slick flick sheen hell or high water circa august Ooh, that happens to be our birthday months how about that mm -hmm. 2014 in honor of this slick flick pick unveiling we describe through smooth detailing this flick's slickness unfailing dying town prevailing and refreshingly plain yet poetic dialogue regaling this is a slick cinematic experience that touches a quartet of genres neo-western crime drama and suspense it transitions so seamlessly between genres and oft simultaneously in such a way that you process it as a simple study in filmmaking sleekness i have adored this film since the unique treat of my first at-home viewing Toby's committed position of familial responsibility, steering his boys from destitution, cuts deeper than even his sole blood brother. He is lean and mean, with a spare, bare life, but will provide for his estranged wife. Toby and Tanner stir a brotherly cauldron of cowpoke chili chemistry halfway to a West Texas earthquake. As the Lone Star sun sets, they sip Lone Star beer to cool their sun-drenched bake. Her stolen bank bills tip, the ranger does take and Tanner getting sloppy was his first mistake. Toby is the anti-hero, estranged from his wife, sporting a tombstone mustache sharper than a knife. But today it's J-Dog and Falsetto who speak with such fucking conviction you'd think there were 10 of us. It came as one satisfying F-Star's realization when J-Dog professed his undying acclaim for Toby beating the shit snot out of those gas station fools while Tanner smirked and all other moments and merits of the slick Flick. Recline, cinematic fanatics, in your favorite well-worn, stale chair, 
rustle up some popcorn, fresh as F-stars, the antithesis to that stale-ass chair I just mentioned. Zoom in and zone out as we unwind the daily grind with a slick fucking flick pick. Hell or high water is the flick, so very slick, hence my F-stars pick. When slick flick pick is near, stick around till falsetto's prophet's voice you hear. Lights, camera, action, lens distraction, and with the right slick flick pick, grant satisfaction. I'm your worthwhile cinephile, you're my cinematic fanatics. Together we excitement unlock and run down the real world's unimaginative F-Stars clock while feasting our eyes on the slick flick pick prize. Enter with us, you cinematic fanatics, into the realm of film's fantasy as we unwind the grind of reality. We offer you pick six, slick flick pick, rocking chairs and lethal stairs, gunplay, wordplay that subvert cliché. Hell or High Water, 2014. Today we will discuss ramshackle towns in decline, robbing to enrich in your bloodline, thinking twice before bank documents you sign, and pining those blue peepers of Chris fucking Pine. The worthwhile cinephile falsetto prophet and special guest, J-Dog. Welcome, man. It's a real pleasure to have you here today. Falsetto, thanks for having me on the show. Love this movie and I'm honored to be here. Dude, it has been what feels like an eon since I had you on for a white collar discussion. This will be much, much more colorful and fun than talking about the prison that is a white collar prison cell. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, this this movie is about robbing banks, and uh, you know, funny thing, you know, whenever we're talking about the things that we talk about, the last time you had me on, when I'm at the job, uh, a lot of times I am thinking uh, about robbing banks and how I could, you know, <laughs> possibly find a way to pursue that career so it's yeah it's an odd coupling well with the amount of land that you're going to have in colorado you might have enough <laughs> land to bury your getaway cars in who knows maybe so you know maybe me and the wife could go bonnie and clyde style i don't know there's there's a lot of options i'd be lying i'd be lying if i didn't say that uh you know with heat being a favorite movie of mine and also this that you know robbing a bank or two has certainly crossed my mind uh various times in my life how about you Oh, man, I can't tell you of a day that's passed in my existence where I didn't think about robbing from the more fortunate. There's no way that I haven't considered every possibility. As long as I had someone as loyal as Val Kilmer or as, you know, Tanner at my at my six watching mm -hmm. my back, I think I think it would be more than doable. Absolutely. And if, if somehow, you know, if I could go into it knowing that if I got caught, that I would not be raped in prison, then I really think I would roll the dice and go for it. But that's just, you know, too tall a mountain for me to climb uh, with that being a possibility on the table. So, yeah, I guess that's just why I've never decided to go through with it. Right. Because at the cost of, of robbing the bank, you're then robbed of your innocence. So uh, so it's not very I guess it's not very equitable. OK, so so tell me what you can remember about your first time seeing the movie. Like, did you see it in the theater? Did you just buy it outright on Blu-ray? Like, how did that how did that work for you? So I know I saw it in the theater and I want to say. As you were doing the intro, I was trying to remember why I was so, and I don't, I'm not a theater person. I don't, I rarely will go to the movies. And this came out in 2016. And I just very few times uh, where I'm really wanting to go and see something at a movie theater. But I was trying to remember what movie my wife, because she was then my girlfriend, were at seeing when I saw a preview for it. And I'm drawing a blank, but I remember seeing the preview and it was like, I'm going to have to see that movie. That looks badass. So, we went to the movie theater to see it. I think we went to a matinee show and to speak to just how unlauded and unappreciated this movie is, like 
I remember it had only been in the theater for a week or two and we were literally, it was a matinee show and we were the only people in the theater. And I could, I walked out of there thinking like, I cannot believe there's not more buzz about this movie. Yeah. Just like, remember thinking that like, that movie was so good. I want to go a couple of years and not watch it again so that the next time I watch it, it can be more like the first time that I watched it. And I don't know if you remember it this way, but I feel like I recommended this movie to you. So you could tell me if you re- recollect that differently. First of all, I owe you and all of the cinematic fanatics a massive apology. I was wrong. I said that this movie was released in 2014 twice. I don't know why I thought it was 2014. It is, in fact, 2016. You are correct. So fuck me. I, I guess I'm not a worthwhile cinephile. I'm an unworthy <sighs> cinephile, but uh, I'm going to make that correction for sure. You know what? I don't know. I know. Okay. I remember we were standing in the alleyway between the two rows of chairs where people were engaged in their, you know, shitty work product. And we were probably talking quietly because we were trying to stay out of earshot of the Pinkerton. And I remember talking to you about this movie. And I remember you telling me that you watched it. You loved it. You now own it. I can't remember if I hadn't seen it. I think, yeah, I think I hadn't seen it yet. I think I was asking for your opinion on it because I remember I saw a poster for this movie in the casing at the theater. That's how I first learned of this movie. I saw the fucking Mm. poster and it was the two brothers walking towards the foreground of the picture with guns. And it was the Texas planes behind them. And then you had a picture kind of like a, a sun over them of Jeff Bridges face. And I thought, what is this movie? And that was how I first learned of it. And then I think you talked it up a colossal amount, but justifiably so. And you might have been the reason that I saw it more promptly. So I appreciate well, that. I knew your love and affinity as mine for the movie Heat, which you and I early on in our friendship realized, you know, that we both loved that movie. Like a combination of Heat and No Country for Old Men. It's a modern day Western. And yes. I just knew I knew that you would love and appreciate it too. Yes, absolutely. In fact, I cannot watch this without thinking about No Country for Old Men. It's that it's you know, it's funny. So I know like like yourself. We both adore the Western genre, right? I remember that you have a strong and you, you most definitely own Unforgiven. We have such a reverence for Unforgiven, but then we also love Tombstone. To be able to watch a movie in contemporary society that's only going back about 20 years. So it's like semi contemporary, but you just feel, you feel the tumbleweeds and you feel the sand and you feel the desperation. Like that's quite a thing when you can capture some, a moment in time especially when it's supposed to be in Texas, where anyone who grew up in Texas, driving on those long stretches of highway, you just know that you're on your own. Like you're totally fucked. If you get a flat tire, it's going to be quickly followed up by a snake bite and you're going to be in a world of hurt. I really love this genre. And I think it was handled so capably by, well, the director, but dude, I got to say, I was definitely gonna get into this, but Taylor Sheridan has turned out to be quite the surprise because The only thing I had to associate with Taylor Sheridan was he was Hale in Sons of Anarchy. And he was great. He was a good kind of righteous, a pain in the ass lawman that was trying to bring down the Sons. To come to find out that he is a screenwriter and or screenplay writer, and he wrote Hell or High Water. He wrote Sicario. He wrote and directed Wind River. He's gone on to be successful with television. He did the very successful show. Yellowstone, and he apparently he just wrote and created the show Tulsa King, where Sylvester Stallone gets out of prison, and he was like a mob boss, you know, prior to his time in prison or some shit. So this guy has quite a knack for capturing these very well fleshed out characters. 
dude, you just blew my mind. I did not know that Taylor Sheridan is hail from Sons of Anarchy. I knew of Yellowstone, but I did not realize that he had all those titles to his to his credit. That's amazing. I was shocked too, because when you see the guy, he just looks like a roughneck. In fact, he also has a small role in Hell or High Water. He's a cameo of one of the cowboys that are dealing with that prairie fire. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. yes. That memorable line where he's talking. Yes, yes. Where, and I, I wonder uh, why I can't get my kids to do this shit for a living. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, that's so good. But I mean, that that line. Yeah, that that's so good. And I did not even realize that that was Taylor Sheridan. Wow. Yep, it's him. And he also has. I only watch, I'm not a huge, like you, I'm not a huge aficionado for Kevin Costner, but I do like watching Yellowstone uh, because of the cinematography and because of some of the crazy shit that happens. But there's so many cameos, like you got Gil Birmingham, who plays the memorable Alberto in this movie, but he's a main character in Yellowstone. And you also have Taylor Sheridan, who has kind of a recurring role as a guy who sells, he breaks horses, he breaks horses in. I feel like it's, it's almost like Taylor Sheridan has created this world and there's a lot of overlap between these different worlds as they kind of come to a head. So for example, mm-hmm. in this movie, when the Cowboys are dealing with the fire, you know, Jeff Bridges is like, who would we call out here anyway? You know, these boys are on their own. Well, that's almost taken out of Wind River, also written by Taylor Sheridan, where there's a scene in uh, Wind River where they say, you know, this isn't the land of law enforcement. This is the land of you're on your own. And it deals with like Native American reservations and yeah, kind of like- a very good movie. Oh, it's, it's such a good movie. And of course, Sicario- has been immensely successful but this guy dude he really found his knack with writing for characters that are tortured or that are dealing with some familial strife or some type of obstacle that they have to overcome throughout a very ever-present ever-changing series of circumstances so i just have a lot of respect for what he can do for the film world so this movie came out in 2016 and it was received critically well and particularly for the performances of Chris Pine, Ben Foster, and Jeff Bridges, the screenplay and the editing. And it was moderately successful financially. I mean, it, it had a $12 million budget and it made almost $40 million. So that's a really good turnaround. And it was nominated for four Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor for Jeff Bridges, of course, Best Original S- Screenplay, and Best Editing. Okay, man, like you, I really love Jeff Bridges, and I think he was perfectly cast in the role of the retired, semi-retired sheriff. Or Ranger. Ranger, 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 Texas Ranger. I really think that Chris Pine brought something to the movie that we hadn't seen before. I mean, he'd done some bullshit with like Star Trek or whatever the fuck. He was in this one indie horror movie called Carriers that was okay a lifetime ago, but he really showed up present for this film. And to be able to go toe-to-toe with Jeff Bridges in that final patio scene and to be able to feel like Jeff Bridges should probably watch out because he's about to get blasted. I mean, that's some really good acting. And I, I wish that he had received some type of Golden Globe nomination or something, but I really was impressed with what he brought to the movie because Ben Foster's always great, man. We, but he, right. he, he always plays a twitchy fucking character. <laughs> remember, remember we talked at work about that scene in Alpha Dogs where he just goes fucking crazy on that coked out rant. That was so funny. Yeah, dude. Uh, well, so to back up, Chris Pine, this is the first movie where I realized Chris Pine had some acting chops. Like I only thought of him as a Hollywood pretty boy until this movie. But uh, yeah, um, yeah, Ben Foster is just great in everything that he's in. But he he's always, yeah, kind of that like, skits out guy who's like <laughs> he's maybe kind of crazy like he just plays that role so well he does he really does and but the thing is he's just so good i mean 
He was so good in a movie called The Messenger with Woody Harrelson, where they deliver basically folded flags to fallen soldiers' families. And he was great, of course, in Alpha Dogs. He was great in Lone Survivor. I mean, he's just always great. And also, I feel like he's always neglected because I can't ever remember him really winning any awards or anything. Oh, shit. Remember him as Charlie Prince in 310 to Yuma with Russell Crowe and Christian Bale? He was great in that. Dude, I got you. I'll, I'll one-up you even. Like, this might just blow your fucking mind. Did you ever watch Freaks and Geeks back in the day? No, I never. I, if I did, I don't remember it. Okay, well, it came on like when you and I would have been in high school. He he played the Down Syndrome character in that TV show. Really? And, and I legit, at the time, thought that he, had, that he had Down Syndrome. Like, he's just a hell of an actor and obviously always has been, even when he was a kid. That's crazy, man. I had no idea. That is great when you find that, when you make those connections, like when you made the connection now to Sons of Anarchy and how yeah. Taylor was kind of an, and, and his death was so fucked up. Like, what the hell? He gets run over by a car or whatever. Yes. Like, yes. no. But no, dude. Uh, so Taylor Sheridan, I, there's a little excerpt I took for how he describes his writing. And it says, Sheridan has explained that the amount of expositional dialogue he read for television caused him to form an allergy to exposition in his writing. So because of that, he creates these stories with absurdly simple plots so that he can focus solely on character. And he has cited for some of his influence, Cormac McCarthy. Now, Cormac McCarthy is important because he's the one who wrote the source material for No Country for Old Men. Mm. He says that he looks at movies as, how am I breaking the rules this time? And he believes that the audience for his films is an intelligent audience so that he can show things without having to tell everything. And I think that's so well captured in this movie because I totally bought into the fact that Chris Pine and Ben Foster were brothers. I totally bought it. And the way that they're playing grab ass out on the field and the way that they briefly talk about their mother and just being in that room that she died in. I mean, they don't have to say more than a sentence or two and you totally learn the lay of the land. And then of course you learn that Ben Foster killed the dad and it conveniently looked like a hunting accident, even though it took place in a fucking barn. However, that happens. But I totally appreciate that the writer treats you like you're an intelligent audience member and you don't have to have everything. Yes. You know, it's, it, it's so beautiful how we get the story around and the fucked up shit that their family has been through, but they don't have to paint us the whole picture. They can kind of briefly touch on some of the baggage there and how Tanner felt like he was the lesser son and not wanted as much. And, that Toby was more loved by their mother and yeah, the accident or quote unquote accident where he kills their father in the barn. Like that's some heavy shit that they just briefly touch on to give us just enough background to really grasp the character. And that's, that's really well done. Yes. Yes. I completely agree. Can you think of a reason why this film holds such a special significance to you? I mean, for example, it's undeniable that one reason that we love Heat so much is because we remember how we were young and it was a movie that we should not have been watching because it was it was far beyond, you know, what we were able to handle emotionally at, at that age. But this movie is fairly recent. So why do you think it made such an impression on you when this is the day and age of these Marvel blockbuster movies that bring in two billion dollars that people are always tweeting about? What is it about this film that just made such an impression for me? I feel like this movie accurately depicts 
modern day poverty in this country and shows the people who are stuck in the cycle of poverty. And it very accurately depicts the system of our society that we live in. It's designed to keep poor people poor and rich people rich. And this movie just does a really good job of showing that. And it's not just in the main characters with Kobe and Tanner where they talk about the cycle of poverty and how that has impacted their entire life and everything that's ever happened to them. But it's other characters. It's, you know, you blew my mind with Taylor Sheridan there and he is talking about how, you know, uh, the life that he has and, you know, his, his children are never going to do that because it's crazy shitty work. But then the waitress at the diner, uh, who's her, the actual actress's name escapes me. I'll always call her April Powers from uh, Eastbound and Down. The young bank teller who was just so terrified after the robbery, you know, she's, she's shaken up and you can just tell that, you know, she's just some young girl from very humble means. And, you know, she's just had the shit scared out of her in this robbery. And then the other one is uh, the exchange where you can really kind of feel the palpable fiction of the cycle of poverty is with Toby's exchange with the Comanche gentleman at the casino and tells him, you know, Comanches are lords of nothing now. And, you know, I just feel like all the main characters and the side characters, it just really does a good job of showing how this system that we have in place just has a special way of just beating down those who aren't wealthy and keeping them in their place. Those are some very astute observations. And in fact, I I did note in my intro that yes, this is also a political film. I don't know that that's what everyone's going to extract from it, unfortunately. But I think you're right. In fact, I think after you saying all of the connections that come back to the status of people's lifestyle, I think it's very much a political film, uh, maybe even first and foremost, along with being a drama and a neo-Western. In fact, the guys that are sitting there at the diner and they're commenting on, well, you know, I think it's great that this bank that's been robbing me for 30 years just got robbed. Yeah. Their little inside man that worked at the bank or the credit union or whatever that's telling them when he asked point blank, you know, Chris Pine's like, why are you helping us? Because I don't like how the bank treated your mother. And the scene at the end when, you know, Jeff Bridges is dying to know it's why revealed. he did this. He tells them and Jeff Bridges doesn't have shit to say. He doesn't have a retort. He's been making funny comments and these little witty rejoinders the entire film. But when he's faced with the reality that I wasn't even doing this shit for me, I was doing it only for my family. I'm still going to live in poverty. I'm not getting a dime from this. I did this for my kids. And Jeff Bridges just looks dumbfounded. He's like, yeah, well, shit. I, I don't. I, it's actually he fairly just, noble. <laughs> he just cut the legs out from it because, you know, Jeff Bridges, Marcus's character is still approaching it in that, in that Toby had some sort of self-interest in this whole matter. And then he's dumbfounded when he realizes that, no, this was all sons and ex-wives life better. And then to touch on those old men in the diner and the waitress, he, Marcus also mentions that they wouldn't identify him. They, he showed him his, his picture because he was hell bent on trying to stick these robberies and murders on Toby. And those people saw him clear as day, but they weren't going to ID him because not out of fear of retribution, but they did it because the bank is an unspoken antagonist in this movie. The bank is the, is the bad guy. That bank's been fucking all these poor people for generations and generations. So they're not gonna, they're not gonna ID somebody who gave it back to them a little bit. And that's, that part to me was really cool. Yes. Yes, exactly. And it also, it adds some weight to the decision on, okay. I've heard people say, my own father said that they find the ending to be impossible or highly unlikely or beyond the realm of possibility. And I'm saying, 
No, it's not. And there's plenty of exposition laid out by Jeff Bridges' former partner, one of his compadres at the Texas Ranger office, where she's explaining why they can't go after Chris Pine. And it all makes sense. You know, it's like he doesn't have a criminal record. We don't have any any DNA or any circumstantial evidence tying him to these robberies. And so Jeff Bridges strongly suspects, in fact, knows about what he thinks went down, but like can't, they, can't they, can't, they can't arrest them, you know? And, yeah. and, and she said, you know, we've, we've investigated it, we, we, but we know that a judge would throw it out for these reasons. And then guess what? Taking the half of that girl's mortgage. Oh, and her name is, uh, her name is Mixon. I think it's Katie think, Mixon. Yeah. It's like taking half of her mortgage. They bring it all around full circle when she says, well, you know, well, one, she wants to fuck Chris Pine. That much is obvious. But the other part of it is she felt like she was kind of treated kind of shittily by these Texas Rangers. So she's not going to contribute any testimony. It all fits. Now, I know you'd mentioned that your wife is also a fan of the flick. Did she give you anything in the times that you've seen it with her? Like, so you said she really liked the soundtrack, right? Yeah. So she actually watched this with me last night, which was surprising because she, she does not like to sit and watch movies very often, but this one does, you know, this one was enough to draw her interest, but yeah, she, she loves it because of, yeah, the soundtrack is big. There's so many good names on it. Towns Van Zant with the dollar bill blues and Chris Stapleton, the outlaw state of mind, Waylon fucking Jennings and let the, they're both singing, let the world call me a fool while they're driving down the road. That's her favorite genre of music. And to her, that's what makes it feel like a, a modern, she hates Westerns, but she likes this one because it is a neo Western or modern day Western. And you know, that music just brings it to life for her. And then the other thing you and I have talked about this is many scenes and that she's originally from Amarillo, Texas, up in the Northern Northwest panhandle of Texas. And whenever we lived in Austin, Texas, we would pass through at least two of these little towns that are depicted in this movie with one being post and the other being Coleman which are very well shown in this movie. And the movie paints a very vivid picture of exactly what these small little West Texas oil cow towns are like. And so it's really neat that I have that connection to the film as well. And that I've driven around post and that opening scene, the opening bank robbery, when the movie very first begins, that is actually post. Uh, when they claim that they're robbing post at the, in the, the very end, the big blowout scene, I don't know where that's at. It's not any part of Post that I've ever seen. But yeah, like I know exactly where that bank is at in Post. And they talk about robbing one of the branches in Coleman. And I've passed through Coleman many times. So I guess that just also kind of adds to my special connection with the movie and that I've, I've seen these places. And, you know, as I watch the movie, I can smell, I can smell the oil, you know, pumping out <laughs> of those pumps. Like it just does, you know, I get goosebumps uh, when I watch it. You know, you're onto something because my father-in-law said, I was talking, we were talking about Wind River and he's actually been to the Wind River Pass. That's actually not only written by, directed by Taylor Sheridan, but he said, if you've been to a place in real life and then you're watching a movie about it. So like he loves, he loves the Bourne identity because he's been to the areas in Germany where some of that was filmed. So if you've been to a place and you can make that real life association, it just enriches the experience on a real personal level. Do you have a connection like that with any movies? I do. I have a connection with a shit ton of movies. And so I'm going to tell you right now, Cinematic Fanatics, that my boy J-Dog, I have already earmarked for us to do Heat together. And I don't care how long it takes for us to review it, even though it's a three-hour fucking movie. I don't care if it takes us nine hours. You might just want to take a PTO day for that one. But I would also love to have you on for Tombstone because there are scenes in Tombstone with Val Kilmer's dialogue alone that would be worthy of an hour-long discussion. So those are just two great flicks. But... What is the best performance in the film, in your opinion? 
Oh man, it's so hard to say. Like, obviously we talked on, touched on Ben Foster, you know, how he has all these memorable lines that, that are, are funny, really. But I mean, you know, you still, I have to, I guess I have to go 1A. 1A is Ben Foster as Tanner and then 1B, Jeff Bridges as Marcus. And then 1C is uh, <laughs> followed closely by the old waitress, the, the rattlesnake waitress. Oh my God. And the T-bone in. Like that was, I mean, it's such a short, cameo or such a short appearance and i've never seen i can't think of any other thing i've seen that elderly actress in but holy cow like you i could smell the grisly fat when that rattlesnake waitress was like i'm hot and not in a good i don't mean the good kind either <laughs> dude she was she was a character that you know and and, and it's so she was such a good character even alberto and marcus kept commenting on her we're like well i know the boys ain't gonna rob this establishment and it's like then you got to deal with the rattlesnake of a waitress we don't serve no goddamn trout <laughs> except one asshole from new york we don't sell no goddamn trout okay have you ever had a customer working in the insurance world that was as big of a bitch as that rattlesnake man you know i can think of many crazies that i have encountered like that but man that you could just you just feel the venom coming off of that lady. Like <laughs> I, I'm hot and not in the good way, you know, like just someone that like, you do not want to be stuck behind this lady, you know, in the line at a grocery store. You don't want to be sitting next to this lady at the table at a restaurant. Cause she's going to be the lady who's probably getting her food spit in. Damn sure. Don't want to be waited on by this lady because that was, that was some serious venom. Oh yeah. It was great. Do you think this is a film for dicks or do you think it's a film for chicks or do you see it being equal opportunity film where both genders can get something out of this one? Mostly for dudes, just because there is the gunplay and, you know, it does have that heat and no country for old men type of feel. But I mean, women can like it too. You know, like I was mentioning, my wife isn't a huge fan of actually sitting and watching movies because she just, she has a short attention span. So she prefers, you know, to watch shows to where she can take breaks and stuff like that. But I think there's a lot of women who like this movie. What do you think? Oh yeah, I think. Well, one, you've got the appeal. Oh, of and a, Chris Pine's so goddamn dreamy. You've, you've got you've got Chris Pine with a goddamn Val Kilmer mustache, <laughs> Doc Holiday style. You know what? I think it applies cross gender because it's a human story. Every yes. every woman that's not a cowboy herself it has fallen in love with a cowboy, or has a husband who's a cowboy, or works a blue collar job or has kids that grew up cowboys. I mean, there are connections to be made to just about every character in this movie. How about all the women that are work in law enforcement or they have a husband that's a Texas Ranger, you know? I mean, there's just so many humanistic components to this film that I think it crosses all of that. Now, Red Devil loves it. She loves it maybe as much as I do. I don't know why, but I think it's just so damn it's just such a damn likable movie. Pulls you in. It does. It pulls you in. Would you like to see a sequel or do you think they should just let it lie? You know, I would love to know if Marcus and Toby ever do pick the conversation back up or try to give each other peace. But it's almost like the you can feel the art in that we we can just wonder, you know, maybe they did. Maybe they didn't on the same line of wondering what's in the briefcase in <laughs> Pulp Fiction. You know, like it's just I think some things are just better left unsaid. I wonder if if they were to do any sort of second film could a prequel add value and that we go we get into when Tanner kills their father and what their life was like growing up on this ranch and how their parents ended up getting in this pickle with Texas Midland Bank. The problem with sequels is they can never live up to the first one. So no matter what avenue the creators went down, I just don't think it could ever even get in the ballpark of 
this movie. Yeah, you're right. Because when you have a like a, a virtually flawless film, it's such a collection of a perfect storm of characters, actors, everybody bringing their A game. And kind of like with albums, you know, when you have an up and coming artist, it's kind of like, and I know you're a proponent, a big fan of boxing. The person that's fighting to take the belt is hungrier than the heavyweight or the champ who's trying to hold on to their belt. They just, they seem to be operating from a richer source of energy when they make that first album or they make that first movie because they don't know if it's going to be successful or not. Sometimes the actors will go for broke. But now when you're doing a sequel or you make it a, like a serialized concept, sometimes it gets a little bit diluted, unfortunately. I think it is a possibility because Taylor Sheridan, he's done a lot with these TV shows where he directed or he totally created Yellowstone and he's already- <laughs> the, man lo- the man loves prequels. <laughs> yes, because he started doing the 1886 thing with Tim McGraw, which is a direct prequel to Yellowstone or, or it's in the same universe or something. So I think anything's possible. Look at Sons of Anarchy. I wouldn't be surprised if Sheridan was involved in some of that and they've already made the Mayans. And like you were telling me years ago, they have a theory that they're going to turn it into like four separate presentations where you're going to have learning about Opie's dad, Piney, and just kind of the outlaws from... And John Teller, the prequel when they yes. meet in, in Vietnam, which I yes. still think would be so good. And I almost want Mayans to wrap up for that reason, just because I want to see if Kurt Sutter would ever go that route. And then possibly a sequel to Sons of Anarchy, where we see what life is like for Jax's sons coming of age and becoming the age where they might join the club. And yeah, that would be those I could definitely get behind. Yes, exactly. If it's good material, I don't mind, but I will just, the one thing that I miss about the originals are the characters, because we know that Tanner's dead and Tanner was just such a huge draw for this movie. Yes, yes. I think the two greatest moments of acting in the film were when right after Jeff Bridges' partner, Alberto, gets shot through the brain, his reaction to that, and then when he shoots and kills Tanner, he has this moment where he's celebratory. He's giddy for a moment. But, but, but then he immediately goes to sad and just exhausted, all within about a five-second period. But then I think my second favorite uh, moment of visual acting was when Ben Foster just stares at Chris Pine on that vacant road. He tells him with his face, I'm going to head off here. You take the money. I love you. And that go was fuck just, yourself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he's like, go fuck yourself. And that actually reminds me of this TV show that Wayne Bamcam and I like called Supernatural because it deals with two brothers and they're always calling each other bitch and jerk. They're just always calling each other that. But it also reminds me of True Detective season one, Marty Hart, and you've got Rustin Cole, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. And they're always telling each other to go fuck each other. They're always giving each other the finger, even though they love each other. It's just, <laughs> it's just like a real brotherly thing. This is a little trivialized trivia. I call it TT for trivialized trivia. But as you know, the phrase hell or high water typically means do whatever needs to be done no matter the circumstances. But I did not know this, but it also refers to what's called a hell or high water clause in a contract, usually pertaining to a lease of sorts, which states that the payments must continue regardless of any difficulties the paying party may encounter. So that directly speaks to the bank and the bank snake that is taking money from you know this poor family. I thought this was crazy. Due to tight scheduling with one of the Star Trek movies that Chris Pine was involved in, dude, he was only available for two and a half weeks. That's it. Wow. So all of his scenes had to be shot very rapidly. And that's nuts. The films, I like I like Hell or High Water, but the film's original title was Comancheria, which is a region of New Mexico and West Texas and nearby areas occupied by the Comanche before the 1860s. And, you know, Comanche is such a recurring theme in this movie, like, so obviously there's that great poker scene. Ben Foster ha- shows the balls that he has and he says, you know, I'm Comanche. 
But then also there's that great line right before Alberto gets it when Jeff Bridges says, Hey, can't you just slink up that mountain and just and just tomahawk that guy like a Comanche? <laughs> oh, and this is what I was gonna say about Dr. Pepper and Mr. Pibb. So in your favorite scene, the thugs at the gas station, he notices that it's a Mr. Pibb and he complains about, well, I said I wanted Dr. Pepper. And he's like, you know, only assholes drink Mr. Pibb. So Dr. Pepper was invented in Waco, Texas, which I didn't know, or I'd forgotten that I knew. Apparently, it's a cultural thing where there's a lot of areas in Texas where you are kind of looked down upon if you're sipping on a Mr. Pibb, I think because Mr. Pibb was kind of the answer to Dr. Pepper as far as competition goes. And so the people that are from that area, especially Texas, they have a real reverence for Dr. Pepper. That's why he made the comment about being an asshole. And this is one of my favorite scenes too, dude, but you've got all these good old Texas boys chasing after the Bronco that didn't have a camper or a top on it. And he starts shooting his AR-15 at the townspeople. He does several quick reloads. He reloads it three times and he has the way that he has the magazines of ammunition, that's called jungle style, which they did the same thing in heat where you tape two magazines together, opposite ends, and then you can just do a quick reload. And when he unloads on those Texas boys, I thought that was fantastic because I didn't know what the fuck he was going to do. And he just keeps outdoing himself because then he makes He's so nonchalant. Little... I know. <laughs> and then he makes that makeshift gasoline bomb in the, in the truck and drops it down and blows up the state trooper's car. I mean, the dude was just totally insane. And that's why when Jeff Bridges makes his comments, you know, we like, this boy's out of his mind. And then he even tells Chris Pine later, he's like, you know, you know why your dumb shit brother died is because he took pleasure in all this crazy shit that he was doing. And he's right. He did. And of course, while the film is supposed to take place in West Texas, it actually was filmed in Eastern New Mexico and some areas. Well, it's, it's all in New Mexico, but it's just different communities in New Mexico. There, there might've been some areas that were filmed actually on location. Well, the opening scene is definitely in post Texas. I can promise you that because I, I know exactly where that bank is, but yeah, I mean, later when they claim they're in post, that's not post and yeah, maybe just a few scenes, but that, that actually makes more sense now that you're saying that it's mostly shot in New Mexico. Dude, they should have had you on as a location <laughs> advisor. You could have been like, whoa, 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 motherfuckers. Okay. If you want this to be this and you need to be over here and you need to position that <laughs> camera over there, you should have been involved. Should have. I should have. They should have consulted me. This is the time where we just kind of blow through the movie. So I just took notes as I went. And so this is just going to kind of an open forum thing. If anything leaps out at you, just chime in. But basically we start and it's a Lionsgate film. The score. I thought that both the score and the soundtrack were top notch haunting, stirring with a hint of melancholy. It's rare to have a movie where you have both excellent score music and soundtrack music. And in this case, like you so eloquently stated, the songs that were handpicked for this fit perfectly with each scene. Yeah, it just makes it so vivid. Like I feel I feel like I'm there in this movie with the music and the scenery, not only because of my familiarity with some of these geographic locations, but you know, with it being a modern day western and with the use of the playing of a lot of these kind of modern day country western renegade style artists as well as the older artists who also fit into that genre like i just it's such a clear picture man i feel like i'm there i feel like i'm in the movie exactly and, and that's like, like you were saying it draws you in and we have a fantastic opening the camera work that long tracking shot of the moving car i absolutely loved it and i'm glad that you made me aware that it looked like it was filmed on location and that will actually be one of two scenes where the camera follows the car as they're driving. And you can just clearly hear what they're saying in the car. And I love it when Toby's getting all pissed off and he's like, slow down, slow down. He's like, I ain't speeding. I ain't speeding. And then, <laughs> and then when, you know, Tanner gets a little bit greedy and robs that bank from that attractive Native American woman that's at the teller and 
Toby's like, what the fuck are you doing? He went against the plan. And he goes, I caught us up this morning, so that makes us even. And he's like, shut the fuck <laughs> up. It was just great. Um, and I, I noticed that graffiti at the very beginning of the movie. It said three tours in Iraq, but no bailout for people like us. It was the oh, wow. little, little touches like that, man, that really makes the movie feel lived in, not just like it's a, a prop or a set of sorts. You can feel the pain of everyone in the movie. And, you know, they've been they're the They're so downtrodden by downtrodden for economical reasons and caught in a cycle of poverty. And you can just feel it from everybody. Yes, exactly. And that first bank teller, that's actually a very welcome Dale Dickey, who was great in Winter's Bone. And I don't know if you know this. But she was one of the junkie tweakers in Breaking Bad yes. when they were trying to break into that fucking ATM machine. And she's, she is, she's she, great. She's also, uh, I, I know you recently told me you never watched this show back in the day, but she's also prostitute Patty from My Name is Earl with Ethan Suplee and Jason Lee, I want to say. Holy it was on uh, a funny uh, kind of sitcom show. That oh, The only reason I watched it is because I was a big fan of The Office and this aired on thursdays stacked against the office and so yeah she's a talented actress i feel like i recently saw her in something else and she played whatever role she was in really well but yeah she has a short a short role but a memorable one dude she's great she's originally from tennessee oh i know what she was she was nash in vice principles yes that's oh, it dude, mr gamby yes. mr gamby <laughs> what's the problem he's like he's like come to me come to me nash oh dude it she's great she's always welcome she usually plays hard characters because, you know, she's obviously she's had a life. You can see it on her face that she's lived. She a has life. that look. Exactly. Yeah. I love it when Tanner says, you're stupid. Back to her. Yes. yes. I, think, I think he got his feelings hurt. Because <laughs> he, he, he can tell she admit it. Yes, exactly. Now, we're going to play a quick little game, J-Dog, where I'm going to name a town that's mentioned in the movie. And you tell me if you're familiar with it or not. Now, you've already said you're familiar with Coleman and Post. So I'm not including those. But just a quick yes or no. Are you familiar with this town? Are you familiar with the town of Olney? Olney, yes. I want to say that is near Brownwood, perhaps. Okay. What about Jayton? J-A-Y-T-O-N, Jayton. No, I guess not. How about Archer City? No. Stamford? No. Childress? <laughs> yes, Childress. I do know where Childress is at. That's, that's in the panhandle, not too, too far from... from no, and they mentioned Lubbock, but we all we all know Lubbock. I've been there. You've been there. Everybody knows Lubbock. Yeah. Uh, and I, I love that they mentioned that Tanner had been in Huntsville prison for 10 years. That is my alma mater. Okay. Not the prison, <laughs> but the college. Uh, Sam Houston, of course. <laughs> the walls. That explains so much about you also. <laughs> <laughs> now, I thought that the landscape shots and the overview shots were just gorgeous. Uh, I never get tired of looking at the, the rolling plains that you don't get to see when you live in the, you know, the urban jungle. Now we're going to play a game called do you think these are actual believable billboards that you would see driving around these poverty-stricken communities? Okay, closing down, debt relief, in debt, question mark, fast cash. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? That that was the only thing on the billboards. <laughs> not not got milk, not Twin Peaks. It's just nothing but like foreclosures and fast cash. And that's so, it just feels so genuine. It helps to paint the picture of the cycle of poverty of this region that these characters live in. As you say that, I was trying to think what mostly I have seen when making that drive from Austin to Amarillo along through some of those towns. And I feel like the main thing that sticks out to me is religious and uh, personal injury attorneys. <laughs> a, lot exactly. of, a lot of God, God and stuff like that right. that is going to appeal to the Bible Belt, but maybe not so much appeal to, how can I put this, more, the more educated person. Right, right, exactly. 
And I love that they captured an image of a dust storm as it was occurring. That looked, yeah. that looked really, that looked really good. And now the dialogue between Alberto and Marcus was just fucking pitch perfect. It's like, <laughs> oh, you, offensive. <laughs> you, you're just going to sit there and let Alzheimer's run its course. Like yes, just that, yes. that kind of stuff, like their back and forth was so great. And I love that Alberto was fucking vaping because you have these guys that you would expect to be smoking like a pipe, like a corn cob pipe or something. And here he is fucking vaping. Vaping a jewel or something. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I love the di- I love the dialogue between them. And yeah, I mean, definitely of a quasi offensive nature. I-, I have friends of many different ethnic origins and I would never speak to any of them in, uh, <laughs> in, in that manner. If it worked for them, then, you know, that's fine. If there's no hard feelings, but then at the same time, and you kind of touched on this when Alberto gets killed, like, you know, he's saying something racist in the moment, but then you can see that immediate hurt of this is, this is probably his best friend who's been, just been shot through the head. And then, you know, then he snaps back into the gunfight. And then yes, after he kills Tanner and kills him with the rifle from 500 yards, momentarily he's elated and even giddy, but then he goes right back to, you can hear him kind of crying in his yes, voice and he's yes. thinking about Alberto and Alberto's children. So, you know, here's this person who he works with every day and says all this belligerent racist shit to, but he is hurt. He's truly wounded. And he's never going to be the same for not only the loss of his friend, but seeing how he went out and then knowing the cross that that man's family is going to bear in perpetuity. He feels that. Exactly. Yes. And it's so funny because it's kind of yin and yang. But on the one hand, one of the funniest scenes is they're in the bank, they're doing their investigation and he's making fun of Alberto for his Native American heritage. But then he starts walking away and he goes, well, you know, I'm like half Mexican too. He's like, Oh, don't worry. I'm going to get to that after I run through all these Native American ones. And then the bank manager's like, man, you Rangers are sure a strange lot, you know, (laughs) on the yin to that yang is when he says, you know, Alberto, when I'm dead and gone, it's the teasing that you're going to miss. And I think that that's so true. I totally get what he, because, you know, the things that you're going to remember about your friends and your coworkers, it's the nicknames that they crafted for you. (laughs) It's the jokes that they said at your expense. It's that guy that I used to work with that used to work with that fell out of his chair and people were making fun of that for about six months. But I mean, look at J-Dog, you know, you're not even who you are anymore. You're J-Dog now going forward every day of the rest of your life. So, oh, and what their dynamic reminded me of perfectly was Gomi and Hank from Breaking Bad. It was Mm. the exact same type of relationship where they're just always busting each other's balls and it was fucking great. I love how he keeps making fun of, or he keeps alluding to the rocking chair, you know? You might actually have an adventure before they send you off to the rocking chair yet. Like, you can feel the grief and the ambivalence that Jeff Bridges is feeling about having to be retired from everything that he's, yes. you know, he's known. And I love that they're always drinking Lone Star beer or fucking Shiner Bach. <laughs> like, that's... Now, do you like Lone Star beer? Do you like Shiner? Lone Star, yes, but more the blue label. Call me a bitch, if you will. <laughs> but... Not so much Shiner, not really a dark beer guy, but this movie really makes me want to drink a Lone Star beer. And, you know, obviously with both of us being from Texas, we have that that connection to it. I had a, a roommate, not to deviate too far, but someone who I lost who was very near and dear to me. And one of my best friends who was a huge Lone Star, he was from the San Antonio area where the brewery is at and had literally Lone Star everything. Shirts, hats, we had a Lone Star table dining table and coffee table. He was my roommate in college and he got me onto Lone Star beer. And literally last night as I was watching this and watching the characters sip on one, I I don't drink much beer these days, but I was honestly considering getting up and walking to the convenience store next door just to see if perhaps they had 
Lone Star beer. But how about you, Lone Star, <laughs> Lone Star or Shiner? Well, I like Shiner, but I, I really only like have one. But with like Lone Star, you know, you can drink like six of them. You can drink, you can drink a dozen, and they right, just, right. They just get better and better with each one. <laughs> yeah, I remember with uh, with Lambro one time we went to this place in Round Rock, and we did. I forget the name of the bar, but we did. It was a special for four dollars. You could get a Fireball shot chased with a Lone Star beer. So we were doing those. Which, you know, uh, that's a good, that's our version. That's like a poor man's flaming Dr. Pepper, if you will. Yeah. I think it's interesting that they have these connections. So the brothers have this connection to this, this guy at the bank who's basically in on it with them and he's kind of, mm-hmm. help, he's kind of helping them out. But also the guy that they buy the Bronco without a top from, he's clearly involved in it. And he, I love how he's like, well, it's kind of, kind of feels like beer o'clock. And then he's yeah. like, ask, ask, and shall receive. <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, this, this just gets cooler and cooler. The, the crooked car dealer. Yes, yes exactly. Absolutely. It's like, don't, don't report it stolen until Monday or whatever. Now, my favorite cinema shot, just on just how it looks, is you've got Ben Foster leaning on the fence post, and you've got Chris Pine sitting in the truck bed, and then you've got the windmill. And just the way they show that shot where they can just be together in silence. They don't have to talk all the time. They clearly have history. They're close. And I like those little quiet moments where they're just sitting on the patio watching that West Texas sunset and they're just bullshitting. I could watch a whole movie of them just talking about what life was like growing up. They're just being brothers and you can feel that family connection. And that even though life has taken them in these different directions, obviously with Toby doing what he had to do and spending pretty long amount of time and chunk of his life in prison and the decisions that Tanner made in his life that let him, he obviously through a failed marriage and not being a good father to his sons for most of their lives. But, you know, they just have that connection to where like they share blood, they share DNA, they, they can just be in the moment and they don't have to be catching up on different things. And I, that makes, that honestly reminds me, like, I'm going to ask you whether or not you have this, like, do you have those friends in your life? You can have not seen or talked to somebody in years. And then maybe you get together and you spend five or 10 minutes catching up. And then you can just be living in the moment and having fun with whatever's happening. Like I, I'm fortunate enough to have a few people in my life that I've known for, you know, most of my life, 20 plus years to where, yeah, we can catch up and, you know, find out what everyone's kids are doing or how their job is going and spend a short amount of time catching up on the things you miss. But then after that, you can just be and just live in the moment. You, you have anything like that in, in your life with people, you know? Well, it's funny because the answer to that question is also the former speaker. You, j Dog, are officially one of those individuals, and I'm not even fucking being hilarious, even though I like to be hilarious, but think about it, okay, I have not even seen you in person in over two years, at least, because you had COVID. God, it would have been, right? been 2020, right? Yeah. Yeah, you had COVID going, well, okay, so then it's been going on three years, because you had COVID, so no office, and then we've now we live even further apart. We've both, I, I decided to migrate east, and you, you migrated west and north, we're on two almost, well, we're in, we're, we have several times. We're, we're two time zones apart. Yeah, yes, exactly. In ways that, okay, it's, it's one of those things where I feel closer to you now than I did even four or five years ago, which in a way is odd because when you see someone weekly, you would just think that proximity and seeing someone on a regular basis, you would feel the closest to them that you're going to feel. You can't be yourself in the workplace environment. Like, yeah, that's true. That's true. There'd be those times where you, me, Lambro, maybe we sneak off and say the things that we're really thinking because we know that we can be ourselves. But, you know, you got to watch out for, as you uh, often talk about in uh, in your Kimo Hawk sessions, you got to really watch who you say things about, you know, around. And uh, yeah, so honestly, it's even whenever you still work for the same company as me, 
and we were at home, we were probably connecting more deeply than when we were in the office because you just have to be such a fake person when you work in that kind of environment. Well, and I feel like we both gained some life experience. I mean, so we both got married. We both got married. And I think it just was kind of a sequence of events where you were living your life. I was living mine. I started my podcast. You started listening to it. And some of the stories really resonated with you. And then we both remind ourselves of the fact that we're basically from the same place. We're the same age. We knew a lot of the same kind of historical figures there in Houston. And Our birthdays are two weeks apart. I know. Same year. <laughs> and so I just think about all that stuff. And now, even though we have a, a geographical distance, I just feel like, I mean, okay, the devil's in the details. The answer lies in prior to this actual podcast. I opened up to you on the fucking phone about stuff that I can't even remember telling any single person that much personal information in such a short span of time. I mean, no alcohol. And I'm, ta I'm, I'm talking about my half sisters. <laughs> I'm talking about my estranged relationship with some family members. And it's just coming out of me, partly because you have a genuine interest in wanting to know, but too, because you're asking the right questions. And I just couldn't help myself. So there you go. I should have been a therapist. Yeah, you should have been a therapist. But then I you should have been a, ther th a therapist or a TV psychic, I think. But then it would be like this bank and post because you would be given uh, therapy lessons, but then they'd be even more fucked up. So they'd have to come back for more therapy <laughs> and then you'd have them, you'd have them on the hook for, for their life. Okay. So in the movie, there's uh, a mention of Pemmican. Jeff Bridges makes a Pemmican comments to Alberto. I didn't know what that was. So I looked it up and Pemmican. Is a, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. It, sa it says a paste of dried and pounded meat mixed with fat and other ingredients originally made by North American Indians and later oh, okay. by Arctic explorers. So maybe Eskimo. I don't know. Maybe I was wrong. I used to buy like a, what I thought was beef jerky, but like the cheap beef jerky, like the 99 cent kind that uh, was labeled as pemmican. I think, well, I think that's what it is. It's basically, it's, it's meat. It's, it's like, it's probably leftover meat that's been pounded together. And then you get to enjoy it on your road trips when you go up to Amarillo. So there you have it. Now, I like that they talk about Justin, which is Chris Pine, one of Chris Pine's sons, dreaming of playing A&M football. Ah, you know what I say? I say fuck A&M. That's what I say. But that's just me. Hey, remember that bonfire? People forget about that. Oh, too soon. Oh, oh, too soon. God, God, it was like 20 years ago. Okay, that's fine. Uh, rest I just, in peace. Rest in oh, peace. Well, I mentioned that on a podcast episode, I think, when I was talking with the Red Devil, and I think 14 people died from that little crazy situation. God rest their souls. But at the same time, like, what in the fuck were they... How was that a thing that they were allowed to do that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. It's just the mystery. It's the mystery of the alumni that we're not privy to. Um, Aggies, man. Now, I'll have you know that Tanner is 39 years old in this movie, which is one year away from me and J-Dog. How about oh, that? Oh, God. Don't remind me. When they were in the car singing along and they go, yeah, yeah. Is that that song you were talking about? The one they were singing together? That I think so. It's a Waylon Jennings song. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the one. But it's a classic. Waylon Jennings is, you know, talk about people gone before their time. But he has, uh, and I'm not even, I have been a huge country music fan at periods of my life. I'm really not anymore except for the Waylon Jennings and the Merle Haggards and the Willie Nelsons and yeah it's just some of that music is just so timeless okay the next time that somebody pisses you off at the white collar I want you to use Tanner's words suck a D and eat my A I want you to say those words <laughs> just like that you know with with authority the barfly strumpet that is trying to hit on Chris Pine because of his large role of chips she actually looks like a trollopy version of my sister that I mentioned on the phone call prior to this oh, wow. podcast. My sister, from what I remember, she's a very pretty girl. And this girl, if you can remember, actually looks quite a bit like her. It's weird. So I don't know what to do with that, but there you have it. Hmm. Here's some dramatic irony. When Alberto and Jeff Bridges are on the porch at the hotel and they're just kind of pontificating on life and everything, Alberto says, 
He hopes to see everything through to the end, meaning like live a long life. He will not. How ironic. I think that's fucking crazy because he's the one that gets yeah. added. Yes. And I love the line, Indians aren't supposed to feel sorry for cowboys. I thought that was funny. Tanner and Toby, they trust the bank dude that's helping them because I noticed that Toby shakes his hand. But then later, the guy that sends the facts, he does not shake his hand. He, in fact, he denies the man a handshake altogether. And so I think that's interesting that he showed by way of a handshake, okay, you're all right. We can trust you. Now, the total balance of money owed on the house is $43,000. That will make them free and clear. And then I love, of course, we don't see, we don't sell no goddamn trout that, that, or, or that weren't no question. I love that too. And I love that he hands a son who's probably 16 years old, a fucking beer. And then his son's like, I'm not taking that beer. It. Yeah. I love Good that. Boy. Have you ever seen a man sit down looking as relaxed as Toby looks when he's sitting? That dude is just totally chill on those chairs with his legs sticking out. He looks like he could take a nap at any given moment. I noticed that. You're talking about whenever he's meeting with his son and he offers him the beer? Yeah, like when he sits there or when he's sitting on the patio talking to Ben Foster, he just has this really relaxed fucking sit. Who knew Chris Pine could play uh, a Texan so well? Like, uh, probably one of the best fake Southern accents I've heard in a movie, at least in recent memory. Yes, yes, totally believable. I thought it was funny that, you know, the movie is not really that hip with technology, but I think how funny it would be if they simply had a cell phone, a little bit of cell phone recon, and they could have determined that that bank was closed before they tried to go to it. Um, well, but I, I thought the same thing. Like I, I have thought to myself when I watched this movie, I wonder what year is it supposed to be taking place? And you don't see some of the technology stuff, but the stickers, their registration stickers in their vehicles say 2016. It is taking place in 2016. But yeah, uh, how, how in the hell did they not know that that bank had been closed down? And you almost wonder if maybe they could have benefited from some of the technology stuff. Well, and honestly, I think some of it was by design because what they were showing from the very beginning was that these boys aren't expert bank robbers. They showed up to the bank too early. They knew just to ask for the loose cash, but they're new at this. It's not exactly Neil McCauley and his crew, you know. Yeah, they're, they're, they're trying to look like tweakers. Yes. Tweakers, tweakers, <laughs> tweakers don't sleep. Like, tweakers don't sleep. They, they tweak. <laughs> oh, and, and just the way that the plains and the rolling hills look, it reminds me of Moss, Llewellyn Moss from No Country for Old Men when he's hunting those deer. And I'll just yeah. tell you now, man, Llewellyn Moss is one of my favorite characters from cinema ever. I loved Josh Brolin playing the Welland Moss. I thought he was such a fantastic character. Well, the like, dialogue in, these, in, in No Country for Old Men and this are so similar. There's the, the quips, the back and forth, the banter characters have amongst each other. You know, the lines as they're walking away from each other, the sarcasm, the, you know, the sardonic lines that they have back at each other. There's just oh, so many similarities between the movies and the, the script. I love it. And I love it when like Llewellyn Moss gets home to his trailer and his wife's like, Where? he's like, he's like, what you, what you got there, Llewellyn? He's like, I got something that's on your business, Carla Jean. She's like, well, where'd you get it? He's like, at the getting place. <laughs> so here's a question. Would Jeff Bridges have drawn down on Chris Pine if the family Explorer wagon had not rolled up in the driveway? You have to wonder, you know, instead of saved by the bell, saved by the expedition, because it really and I, I had forgotten that part of the movie until last night when I was watching, but that shit was really starting to escalate as they sit there and share a beer on the porch. Like Chris Pine is holding the shotgun and Marcus, Jeff Bridges, he's former law enforcement, Texas Ranger. He's going to be armed. Like that shit was starting to escalate. And it really makes you wonder, like, where was that about to go? I would tend to think cooler heads would prevail. Well, you can clearly see Jeff Bridges. He sticks a, a small concealed pistol, you know, near his dick. 
before he leaves his house. I didn't catch that. He's on the sofa with his dog, just kind of living a retired life. He opens up like a little tiny gun safe. He's holding the gun on the sofa. And for a minute, I'm thinking, well, he's retired now. He's depressed. He's going to eat his gun. But that's not what happens. He kind of stands up. He tucks it in like his waistband and then he leaves. And then the car rolls up to the Chris Pine property. Yes, he came armed. Oh, and shit. So that adds a little bit of extra gravitas to the theory that they were going to gat the fuck out of each other. The ending of this film, will it ever be better than Robert De Niro, who took like three slugs to the chest and he's laying there bleeding at the airport and he says, told you I was never going back. Mm. No, it's probably never going to be better than that. But what I love about this ending is it's unexpected. Nine times out of 10, you watch a movie like this, especially a Clint Eastwood Western, and it's going to end at gunplay every time. There's going to be some big shootout. There's going to be some grand explosion or some shit. Nope. This is one of the quietest, but also most resounding endings I've ever seen. And I do not consider it to be anticlimactic. I consider it to be a graceful ending where they've already had the shootout. Like in, okay, so like in Heat, you have this big shootout at the bank robbery about halfway through the film. But the second half is just as riveting because it's like, well, where do they go now? How does he escape? Well, it's the same thing here where you had this crazy ass gun. And, and I was very pleased with the action sequences in this movie. But you have, yes. this, you have this huge gunfight and you have all these people shot at and all this mayhem. Well, how is he going to get away? You're wondering how he's going to get away. How is this going to end? I really thought the ending was great. And I thought it subverted cliche, which is why I titled this episode that. I was very, very, very satisfied with the ending. Absolutely. I mean, the question I ask myself is, would I call this a happy ending? We've made numerous comparisons to Heat throughout this session. And Heat's ending is not a happy ending. Law enforcement prevails. The quote-unquote good guy prevails, even though you are kind of rooting for the bad guy in Heat. But here, the primary antagonist, though it's not an actual person, as we've discussed, is Texas Midland Bank. They are the bad guy. They lose. And Chris Pine, a.k.a. Toby, commits the, the perfect crime and gets away with it, though it costs him a person who he may be closest to in this world. He will have his own scar to bear, cross to bear. And while Jeff Bridges, a.k.a. Marcus, does not like the way this turned out and will have forever have this terrible taste in his mouth from his last case as a Texas Ranger, he you know, lost his partner. He gets it. He doesn't like it, but he knows that this bank was screwing these poor people, these poor poverty stricken people. So he doesn't like it, but he understands it. And, you know, there's, there's a reckoning and that's why it's such a good film. Very, very proficiently stated. You really have a knack, man. I mean, I, I know that you love movies and I know that you have an analytical downright poetic approach to your discussions, but man, you I should have been thinking about having you be a co-host on these flicks for quite a while because you have a, you have a real knack for summarizing things happening in movies in a way that is very revelatory. So I appreciate well, your- but I, I just don't have your, you're a master of cinematography knowledge. And there's just very, I mean, I listen to your, your sessions frequently, often allude to film. And this is one of just a handful of movies that I feel that way about, you know, I just don't. I don't have that same passion that you have, but this is just one that, yeah, it just, it just does it for me, man. It, it satisfies. The audience doesn't walk away getting everything they want. There's answers and it's, yeah, it's just so well done, man. It's, uh, this is, for me, I feel like this is one of the best movies. I put this in my top five movies of the last 10 years. How do you feel about that? Oh, 
Okay, so first of all, if, if not number one, movies are getting shittier and shittier, and it's really fucking depressing, especially for a cinephile like myself who loves movies. I remember going back 2010, where a lot of good movies were coming out, but it seems like every passing year, it's another, it's either some politically motivated film or it's some movie about fucking cartoon characters. Or it's a remake, or it's a, or, or a remake, or a sequel, or or like I mean, there's just certain things you need to let die. Like okay, they brought when they brought back Fresh Prince of Bel Air, a show that we all enjoyed at that time. That show had its time, so just just stop. And, and so what I really like in like in Taylor Sheridan is I like original content. I like original yeah. subject matter, and he has a real penchant for making these films that you just haven't really seen before. Yes, some of the ideas are similar, but it is an original story. I have not seen a movie about two Texas brothers that are robbing banks to get justice for the way that their mother and their family farm was treated. I've never seen that before. Yes, I think it is absolutely, I think it's top five, top three movies that I've seen in 10 years. I mean, in fact, I'm struggling to even think of movies like, like okay, I really like the movie Equilibrium with uh, Denzel Washington, right? But I don't, I would not put Equilibrium or not Equilibrium, uh, Equalizer. I really like Equalizer by Denzel Washington, but I would not put that in the same category as Hell or High Water. I just wouldn't. No. But Wind River, Wind River's probably in the top three as well. Wind River is a fantastic film that touches on a lot of these same human trauma events. And it's just excellent storytelling and it's fully fleshed out characters. By the way, I love Jeremy Renner. Jeremy Renner was in Wind River. He was in The Hurt Locker. He was in American Hustle. He's a great actor. And he just was in a snowplow. And we, we hope he, we hope he gets well soon, and maybe he'll be in a movie again someday. Because I've heard he might be really fucked up. I know. I heard he may not ever be able to walk again, or he's never yes, going to walk the or same lose again. His leg or something. And yeah. I'm like, what the fuck? I love Jeremy Renner. What is happening? You mentioned at the beginning, off mic, that there was something about the movie that maybe you wanted to see a little different, or you wanted them to do a little bit differently, perhaps a critique of sorts. So please tell me about that. Well, so I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, I just remember I mentioned that I thought it was like basically a, a perfect, flawless movie. And you said you had one comment to make about it sounded like the direction. Oh, yeah. Now, now, okay. So, obviously, the cycle of poverty and wealth distribution in this country is an underlying theme. I wish the film they would have touched on more is I do wish that it wouldn't have been only depicting white people being so downtrodden. You know, they, they briefly touch on the, the Comanches and stuff. Right, but, right. You know, I just feel like. You know, on that same note, and with all the allusions to the Comanche Indian tribe, there was this whole genocide of a race of people that's kind of mixed in there that Alberto touches on a bit. But that was kind of my only real, only real problem I had with it is that, you know, there's a lot of poor white people in West Texas, but there's a whole lot of poor not white people that uh, are just as beaten down and downtrodden. So I just kind of wish that they could have shown that in a bit more of a broad sense. But, you know, that's really the only issue that i have with it but hey let's be real there's there's a lot of fucking white people in west texas <laughs> well and the good news is is that taylor sheridan makes that the sole focus of wind river that's yeah, all he, that's all about the reservation all the women that go unnoticed or they go missing they go and missing yes yes, yes. Yeah. good point I, good point i think for purposes of this film that just wasn't the story the story right. was surrounded by these two guys and kind of what was in their wheelhouse you have quite a bit of interaction and, and they really did have some telling dialogue between Alberto and Marcus when, when they're sitting outside <laughs> waiting for this bank to be robbed across the street. And they, they open up about that, you know, like kind of who they are and what their ancestors and all that. So, but no, I, I totally get what you're saying. But so Ebert's who I often will go to because he will write an in-depth kind of like what I would consider to be a J-Dog review where he gets very detailed. He gave it two and a half out of four stars 
which I'm disappointed with. I think he should have given it three and a half because he very rarely gives four stars, but I think he should have given it three and a half stars. But he says the early scenes of Hell or High Water are the best. He says that after seeing so many meticulously choreographed bank heists that try their damnedest to outdo heat, it is amusing to see one stage on a smaller, more realistic scale. It becomes even more interesting once we understand that there is a lot more going on than immediately meets the eye. I totally agree with that. Now, he considers the finale to be a disappointment because he says it's staged and performed about as well as can be, but he says that the whole scene is just so unlikely. This is where I vehemently disagree. With yeah, that. I disagree with that. I, th I think it's more realistic that that would have happened, like a retired lawman would have paid this guy a visit, than a shootout. That's my take on it. And then lastly, and this is where we talk about Ben Foster a little bit, he says, even though none of them are especially revelatory, the performances are probably the best thing to be had in the film. He says the most surprisingly satisfying of the bunch comes from Chris Pine, who turns in his best work to date in a part that finds him dialing down the smirky charm. Okay, I agree. He says, as his brother, Ben Foster, is okay, but at this point in his career, <laughs> he might do well to avoid playing any characters in the near future that could be described as twitchy. <laughs> I get that because, you know, like, yeah, like you know, kind of a tight cast. cast. Right. Yeah. Um, but so whatever, Ebert, you know, fuck you a little bit. Give that another star, but also RIP, Ebert. You did write a lot of movie reviews before you died. So now, J Dog, do you have any last minute thoughts or trivia or just any tidbits that you want to share on this slick flick pick before I get to the conclusion outro? No, you know, I mean, I think we've we've touched on all of it. It's just such a well done movie and really a good depiction of what life is like for poor people. About sums it up for me. Two thumbs up for me. Don't know if I can say the same for Siskel and Ebert, but uh, yeah, great stuff, man. Would you have tipped April Flowers a $200 tip on like an $8 meal, or would you have tipped her even more than $200? I would have went $300, man. <laughs> yeah, because then she could have said, oh, I only got $200, and then she could have kept $100 for herself. Um, <laughs> well, man, I really, really appreciate your time and you finding the resolve to watch a movie so late at night after a chicken fucking fried steak. <laughs> uh, so I, I really, I really appreciate you, and, and I think that if I were you, man, I mean, I know you're a busy, busy beaver, but when things get a little bit calmer, I would love for us to schedule Heat at some point, Tombstone down the line, and I know this is going to be the biggest, most audacious project yet, but I am going to set a hard date where I'm going to rewatch every season of The Shield, and I'm going to take notes, a few notes for each season, and then I'm going to compile my notes, and then we can do a Shield extravaganza where really what we do is we just talk about The Shield. We don't have to get into all the plot points and everything, but we can talk about the characters, why we love it, why it's important. I'm really, really excited to do the S.H.I.E.L.D. breakdown with you because, man, it was such an important show in my life, and it's hard to find people that they even know what the fuck it is, you know? Can't wait, bro, man. Thanks for having me on. Oh, anytime, man. This dogged lawman pursuit of slick escapism was a lean, mean flick, dirtied by tumbleweeds, dust, and grime, driven by two broskies, kind of like Falsetto and J-Dog, who heroically apply crime. This flick is worth the hype. Texas drawl dropping pine subverts standard cast type. His dead set doggedness remains square, but he doesn't seek prayer, nor does he scare. And though shot, mourning, and worse for wear, he seeks still his kid's welfare. Any naysayers beware, or you'll meet his rifle-toting, steely blue-eyed stare. Don't forget their casino laundering trick. So very fucking slick throughout this rare, intriguing flick. I remain always your fellow fiend for films. 
your worthwhile cinephile, and you, my cinematic fanatics. Keep that popcorn fresh, or at least edible, for my next Slick F-Stars pick. Pick 7, Slick Flick Pick, City of Angled Reality, Mace, The Bodyguard You Embrace, Strange Days, 1995. I apologize again for getting the year wrong. This movie came out in 2016, not 2014. Please forgive me. Dumbass. Uh, uh. Falsetto and... J-Dog. Out.